The third phase is recycling. You can take the gray water and you can use that. But also, more importantly, any water that you treat, you've usually paid something for that water. Even if you were pulling it out of the ground, you still had to pay money to treat it and so forth. You might as well get more than one turn out of it. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show. Before we get into today's episode, just want to kind of clear the air from some comments that I got from last week's episode with Daniel Alonzo, who sells financial products. He's in the financial space. He's been doing it for decades. But some people misconstrued the fact that we had Daniel on talking about his career that we were supporters of you have to get a financial advisor or you need to find someone who knows what they're doing to manage your wealth. Justin and I have both reached financial independence through self-management. You know, we do our homework. We learn how to invest. We listen to podcasts. We read blogs. We watch YouTube videos. We figured this out by ourselves. And that's the reason why we started the Fi Show. Like we want you to be able to DIY your financial future. You do not need a financial professional in your corner. Although if you do want one, we're not saying that that's a bad option either, but just Again, want to clear the air. We are not saying that you need a wealth manager. You don't need a financial advisor to become financially independent or to build a successful financial future. 100% agree, Cody. I mean, most of the time, if someone says that investing is too complicated or they really need someone to help them manage the complexity, that's like the first sign that they're misunderstanding what they should probably be doing in the first place because it actually shouldn't be that complicated. With all that said, though, during the episode, Daniel mentioned covered calls. I found that really interesting. I went, did some research and actually applied on Vanguard and am ready to go ahead and start setting some of that up myself to just give it a go. So while it shouldn't be that complicated, there's always something to learn. So if you feel like you need to use a resource like that, no problem. But we just want to make sure everyone knew that we're not saying, hey, you've got to go out and hire these people because it can definitely be done on your own. All right. Just want to make that quick PSA. So now the air is cleared and now we're going to be talking about clearing water. And on today's episode, we have on Riggs Eckleberry, who is taking on some of the biggest companies in the water cleaning and filtration business with his decentralized water treatment. But before we dive into the episode, Justin, what have you been up to? Hey, Cody, this weekend was one of those weekends where we completely thought we were going to be out of town the entire weekend. Like we thought we were going to be down at South Padre, which is this area of Texas down on the tip of the coast, like next to Mexico. It's got these gorgeous white beaches. Got a friend who got a new 40-foot RV and was saying, hey, you guys should come with us. Unfortunately, they forgot to make a reservation, and it was Father's Day weekend, so there were no spots available. But hey, that meant instantly we had a three-day weekend open up with no plans, which isn't all bad. So we had done some work around the house, like laying some rock, clearing out some stuff where we could eventually put some plants in front of the house. And we wanted to do some native like desert plants. Because we travel so much, and it also just feels like Texas to us. So we wanted something easy to take care of. Leslie's aunt has a property a couple hours outside of Austin where it's normally um, a deer camp kind of thing. But they have all these desert plants. So we went out there and harvested a bunch of different cacti and these different, I don't really know what to call them other than like a, like a desert bush kind of thing. But I think they look pretty cool. So we got those, and we planted those in front of the house this morning. Also went to a big UFC event live in Austin, which was really cool. Did a couple cookouts and went out downtown watching some live music. A little local band had an album release party that we went to. So it was just a nice little around Austin again weekend. We've had a few of those, but we're gearing up to go out of town this week, going to a little music festival. And actually, we'll get to do some camping 
in the mountains in Idaho with a guest we've had on the show before, our good friend Whitney Hanson. How about you, Cody? Sounds like you had a pretty local but eventful weekend. I was kind of in the same camp, and I'm actually heading out next week as well. But so this past weekend and week, on Friday night, we got to catch up with, if you listened a couple weeks back, we went to the wedding of one of my best friends from Memorial School. I guess Memorial School is kind of like a New England term, but basically like third grade. <laughs> Never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Best friend from third grade on, and we've been good friends since, but we didn't really get to chat much. I mean, it was a wedding. There was like 150, 200 people. So he was just making his quick rounds, but we actually took him and his now wife out to dinner and got to catch up with them on Friday, which was awesome. On Saturday, I know, Justin, you're usually the concert master, but made it out to a concert in Boston for Revolution, which is like this cool reggae band. They had a bunch of awesome openers. It was a really good time. It's at this venue right on the water. So that was an absolute blast. And then kind of just catching up on some household chores. We're buffing the boat, cleaning off the boat. A lot of these are boat related, fixing the boat, but the boat is going in the water this week at the lake house because that's where we're currently residing for the summer. So that's what I've been up to. But before we get into the episode, let's take a quick moment for our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by LinkedIn Jobs. As the sun comes out and small businesses are back in business, LinkedIn Jobs makes it easier than ever to grow your team. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the right people that you want to interview faster and for free. If you're a small business owner like me, you know that hiring is the key to your success. And with LinkedIn Jobs, you can create a free job post in minutes and reach a network to over 810 million people. After you post your job, you can use their simple tools like their screening questions to make it easy to focus on the candidates with the right skills and experience so you can quickly prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. That's why LinkedIn Jobs is rated number one by small businesses in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates you want to talk to faster. Did you know every week, nearly 40 million job seekers visit LinkedIn? Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fyshow. That's linkedin.com slash show to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. All right. So on today's episode, we have on Riggs Eckleberry, CEO of Origin Clear. And this guy has had a really long, interesting, prosperous role as CEOs of multiple different companies. We get to dig into his story a bit, how he's thought about building and scaling different businesses and how, you know, after in his early career, focusing more on money-making activities. Now he's trying to give back. Now he's trying to build us a better world with decentralized water filtration systems, his water on demand ideas. He's trying to just make water more sustainable because as we get into some of the facts in this episode, the US is abysmal at recycling their water use. And there's some countries, I think Israel was one he mentions, some of the European countries are just so much better at it than we are. We just seem to waste so much water. So Riggs is building a company to battle this problem. And it's really interesting to get a kind of peek behind the scenes. The other thing I thought was really interesting with this episode is the idea of investing in water and kind of water as a service and this ability for them to come out there with all the equipment where an organization doesn't have to invest in that part. They're just paying a metered rate for their water, similar to like we do on our water bills but then allowing other people to invest in that, like to, to buy so much of this. I mean, he even talked so far as potentially like a cryptocurrency around this, but just the idea that you could go out and invest in water because water rates are so different across the country. That's a very interesting thing. It's also an interesting thing as, as far as when you imagine kind of hedging your bets. And I mean, water is one of those things where you know, who knows, maybe we look back in 25 years and it's gotten so much more scarce and so much more valuable that you would have wished that you invested in the ground floor. So it's just an interesting topic to learn more about. 
And whether you want to go and learn more about Riggs Company, Origin Clear, or you just want to take this episode and be able to share it with a friend, you can do all that over at thefyshow.com slash Riggs. That's thefyshow.com slash R-I-G-G-S. Take it away, Riggs. Some people would call it falling with grace. And that's because I've sort of made a mantra out of what I eventually actually branded as mistake-based marketing. In other words, making mistakes, learning rapidly from it. And I think that's the only way these days to actually adapt to what's happening in the world, which is constantly changing, right? So my dad was an itinerant Procter & Gamble CEO. And so I was born in Canada, was raised in the Caribbean, and then did most of my schooling in the French system. And as a result, I think that First of all, I have no friends from the school days. I basically, I don't have a home. And I think it gave me more of a 30,000 foot view and more adaptability. And then after school, I went to the nonprofit space for about 10 years. And there's something about making you know, $10 a week and just working on fabulous things that is, of course, doesn't set you up to pay for a mortgage, but it's the pure straight shot of doing good things for the world. Eventually, though, I started thinking that technology was going to really transform the world. And that's when I finally landed in New York City in the 80s, built an IT company that I gave away. And that was a whole story all, by, all of its own. But really, when I came into my own was with the dot-com, because the dot-com was like rapid change, rapid liquidities. You know, One was five months, the other one was four months, and then another one I think was six months. It was constantly just this ferment, right? It was like a big popcorn popper. Kind of got spoiled by that. And the reason is that typically software and high tech have no mass. You're not trying to build brick and mortar. So things happen quickly. It's all about adoption, what Microsoft calls attachment. You know, do people stick to something? And that is much easier to do than actually building big things. Now, when I finally decided I could become a CEO and somebody actually took me up on it, which was the worst day of my life, that's when I learned, because of the space I went into, that things do move slower but you still got to make change happen. And that's what I've been struggling with in the last 10 years. So growing up with your dad being a CEO, did you feel like you knew from an early age that that's kind of the line you wanted to go down? I'm also curious that kind of compare and contrast, like what you thought when you're watching him and then what you saw in reality, like had you romanticized the role a little more than maybe what it really was? Yeah, well, he was John Hamm, Mad Men. I mean, he was that guy, including all the promiscuity and crazy stuff. And What's weird is that during my period of working in a nonprofit, I actually became a merchant mariner and I went off to sea for many years and came back. Dad hugged me and I was like, what? He'd never done that. I mean, he was not a hugger and it kind of shocked me. So growing up in that 50s, early 60s world was very different from what we expect today. So there's that, number one. Number two, I never really understood what he was doing. And he said, Riggs, you'd make a great lawyer. I don't even know why you're saying that, right? I guess, because he thought I was logical. I have my nose in a book all the time, which I think is the best formation you can have for living is just read, read, read nonstop. But I actually decided while I was in school in the States that I wanted to do film and actually got myself invited into New York University Film School about the same time that Martin Scorsese was there. Ultimately turned away from that. I did eventually do film later. I felt that I was basically able to do whatever I want. And that really, you know, I remember my mom telling me when I was like nine that dad makes 40000 a year. And that was a lot of money back then, probably a million dollars today. We essentially had, you know, hot and cold running servants and chauffeurs and this and that. So I felt that I could just choose what I wanted. 
And so at what point in this journey, it sounds like you had the nonprofit, you were a mariner. I think I read that you did crew. At what point did you kind of just fall in love with water? That's an interesting story because post 2000s when I really felt that I blossomed because a lot of the dreck that occurred in the late 90s with .com had been swept away. And I was able to work on great projects such as selling yellowpages.com. And then eventually I got to be the number two in a company that we got to the NASDAQ. And while I was in that company, I realized it had the seeds of its own destruction. It was a company that had made a lot of money doing rather shady practices, you know, the kind of thing that all of a sudden you get a flash on your screen, like you have malware and they'd actually injected the malware. <laughs> so I came along when they said, Riggs, we want to clean up our act. We have new technology. But I started realizing that the tiger wasn't going to change his stripes. And so that's when I realized I needed to move on. I spoke to a fund at the time that I interacted with and I said, I'd love to be a CEO. I think I'm ready. And they said, not a problem, Riggs, but you know what? We're doing green. We're not doing tech anymore. And what we think is the next big thing is algae for biofuels. And I have a brother who was super cool, super inventive, and he had a tech that we could employ to add some value in this space. And we had a wonderful run for uh, about five, six years where we just had so much fun. And I was on all the big shows, you know, it's like, who to thunk, you know, algae. But the oil industry innovated too. And they innovated with fracking, which drove the price of fuel down below $50, at which point algae became a science experiment. And we had to figure out what we were going to do because being a public company, I had a duty. And one of the good people in my company, Bill Charneski, had this bright idea like, well, we can extract algae from the water. Why don't we just extract sewage from water? And it seemed like a bright idea. And we went with it. So starting in about 2014, we entered the water space as a pivot, as a got to do something, got to add some value somewhere. What I learned immediately was it was like stepping into molasses. Algae was like that, you know, it was inventive. It was all brand new. There was no legacy industry there. With water, there's a lot there. It's trillions of dollars of assets under management. It itself is a trillion dollar industry worldwide and lots of set practices. It takes 12 to 15 years to get a new technology adopted, things like that. And I found also that people think water is very important, but they really don't want to discuss sewage. It's just not their thing. They're like, yeah, that's that concrete thing down by the west side that does something with the water and it's all good. And the water industry has conspired with that by basically saying, don't worry, it's all good. Just flush the toilet and it all goes away. Well, under the covers, there's a lot of trouble with the water industry, mainly because of dramatic underfunding by the federal government. And even now with the Biden multi-trillion dollar infrastructure bill, water got $55 billion, which is less than one year's catch up on their own deficit. So very neglected space, but yet a lot of complacency and a lot of refusal to change reminds me a lot of the taxi industry pre-Uber, right? Where they're like, no, this is how we do it. We're going to be nasty to you on the phone. That's how we do it. I really, with my team, we were working hard to figure out how to crack that nut. And eventually we started to work it out. And when you decided to pivot into water, when you started, what did you see as kind of your addressable market or your like, ideal customer? Like, who were you targeting at this point? We started by addressing the fracking space, right? Like, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. And so we were going to clean up frack water and we came up with the technology. This was before the price of crude had really crashed. And so I remember we had a deal 
that was just cooking with um, the state oil company in Oman, for example, and various other deals. We had a traveling roadshow that was going all over, for example, the Western Shale in Colorado. And all these things were happening. And then the price of crude really took a dive. And what happens then is when things go south in the oil industry, they shut everything down. They stop everything. They just hibernate. And they live off what they can live off, close a bunch of wells. They don't do any innovation. And that took a long time for them to cycle out of. By then, of course, we had realized that we needed to further broaden. And that's when we said, you know what? Let's take this tech and go into industrial water treatment. By then, we were also realizing that a pure technology licensing play was going to run into this problem of the decade-plus acceptance problem. And being a small public company, we didn't have the means to just run the lab for 10, 12, 15 years. And so that's when we realized we needed to do something more. And we started to do different things, most of which have survived as business units that today we're now monetizing. So all our many attempts, most of them did well. One specifically did not, which I can get into, which was the crypto. Most of it actually turned into something really good. But I have to say that we were not happy with organic growth in the water industry because a water company expects to make 10, 15% growth per year, and that's just not enough. And that's what we were experiencing. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is not going to work out very well. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, that's when a lot of us had to reassess what we were doing. And what are you going to do when you grow up? Because it was kind of this moment of reckoning. A lot of investors freaked out. I remember clearly the first week of February when markets started tanking because price of crude dropped, because Wuhan demand had evaporated. And we went, oh, Lord, there's something going on here. And that's when we got into high gear to figure out how come organic growth is so slow and what can we do about it? And this led to the realization, hey, it's the money, stupid. If you can solve the capital problem in water, then things become much more frictionless. And that led to adopting water as a service, which we branded as a thing called water on demand. So as a layperson who's not a water expert, who are like the players in this market that you're competing against? So again, from my layperson's point of view, there's like water companies that are charging you for your showers and, you know, washing machines and you get a water bill every quarter or every month. Then there's like bottled water companies that seem to have a monopoly. A couple of companies have a monopoly on just like bottled water, especially in really impoverished places around the world. So What are the players in the market that you were trying to have an impact against? Okay, so we got Big Water, which is people like Veolia, American Water Works, Evoqua. And these people live off of the municipal bond market. In other words, funding the big central systems. And even though it's underfunded, it's still many billions of dollars. American Water Works has their acquisition budget every year alone is a billion dollars just for acquisitions every year. And that's how they grow. I mentioned 10, 15% is not fast enough. Well, American Waterworks and all the other guys grow by simply you know, buying companies that have managed to become $100 million companies. So there's that space, which obviously we're not going to compete with. And then what we started seeing starting in 2016 was a clear trend towards decentralized water treatment coming from the fact that there's a growing failure of central water systems. There's good research that shows that it's now running about $75 billion of unfunded infrastructure every single year, and it adds, 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 adds. And as a result, you have these disasters like Flint, problems in Fort Lauderdale, South Bend, 
Compton, a bunch of places. These are just the canaries in the coal mine. There's a ton of trouble all over America with water systems. And the consumer is generally unaware of it because, hey, they still flush the toilet and it goes away. But businesses are being asked more and more like, you need to treat your own water. We can't handle your dirty water. Send us treated water. So as a result, you've got a brewery. There's been some very interesting experiences that breweries have had because when a brewery grows, they have a lot of output of effluent. It's not very toxic, but it's a lot of water. And they overwhelm systems when they start growing. And one particular brewery on the, in the East Bay in San Francisco was literally trucking half of its effluent to another county so it could do it somewhere. And so they became a candidate to do their own water treatment. This has been a growing trend. It's now a thing. It's accepted that many, many businesses and communities like uh, housing developments want or need to do their own water treatment. In the case of housing developments, it's an opportunity for the developer to not have to pay for the sewage connection, which can be several million dollars. So there's benefits to being detached. There's also a requirement. The water industry, as opposed to the energy industry, is not fighting decentralization. They welcome it, and in many cases, they mandate it. So that's a thing. So now that meant that all of a sudden, small water companies all over America are starting to become bigger water companies because they're the local guy with the ladder truck becomes an important person. And that you have a lot of growth of these regional water companies. And that's the space we ended up in. We bought one of those companies in 2015. We built one of those in 2018 with a cool modular technology. And so that's the space we ended up in is being in the decentralized space, which obviously has a ton of players. Now, what's our differentiation? First one that we developed starting in 2018 was this water system in a box concept. Ship it out, drop it in the ground, plug it in. And you can also mass produce it because believe it or not, the water industry still does things by hand, customized, etc. So that was one. But it's okay. It's a good differentiator, but it's a slow growth kind of thing. The big one here is this water as a service. Now, water as a service is nothing new in the water industry. They call it DBOO, design, build, own, operate. Well known. It tends to be for the larger systems. One, the company that actually trademarked the term water as a service is a company called Seven Seas. They supply desalination plants to entire islands and they put people on the meter. So they act as a kind of a private utility. But these are big systems, the multi-million dollar systems, and that's how they're set up. So we compete with those people, but not at that, at that scale. We're in the smaller local business marketplace. In that there is a few, for example, there's a very good competitor we have called Cambrian Innovation, which is on the East Coast, but most of their work is in the California area with beverage industry like wine and beer and so forth. And they do a great job. We think we have certain differentiators, which I'll be able to get into, but it's a growing marketplace, which is the local business having to cope with being in the water business, which they never planned to be. When you're making beer, all you want to spend money on is beer making. You don't want to be fixing water. And so these people end up against their will and we have a solution. And when you're talking about decentralized setups, especially, you know, you mentioned like a housing development, and I think that'd be more relevant to listeners, you know, a residential property that's on one of these systems. Is this mm -hmm. only impacting water that's going out or is it including the water that you're drinking and coming in? And if it's going out, is there any reason why the individual homeowner cares? Right. So there's three phases. The first phase is the incoming water, which will need to be purified. Even if it comes from the city, typically the water is 
just water quality typically meets federal standards, but federal standards are way too lax. So you and I know that we better have at least a Brita pitcher on our kitchen counter, the very least, because the water is not great. It's not going to kill you right away, but it has forever chemicals. It has even uranium, all kinds of crazy things. So the incoming water needs to be handled. Then the what in a residential system is called a black water needs to be separated because we're moving away from septic tanks. The FHA has very stringent requirements for financing septic tanks. And the whole idea is to get away from them. They are problematic in many ways. And so what you have instead is called a sewage skim system, which basically skims the sewage off, puts it in a sludge tank, and every six months, a truck comes along and pumps it up. And now you have water. Now, typically, people don't have appetite for drinking that water, even though it can be treated to that level. So it's used to irrigate golf course, lawns, or just recharge the groundwater. The third phase is recycling. You can take the gray water and you can use that. But also, more importantly, any water that you treat, you've usually paid something for that water. Even if you were pulling it out of the ground, you still had to pay money to treat it and so forth. You might as well get more than one turn out of it. And this is a very true in California. I know people in LA that are spending $12,000, $15,000 a month on their water bill. And that's a what? home. It's crazy because there's a punitive levels that kick in. I had a home in Los Angeles and I had a quarter acre that I was irrigating and my water bill was $800 a month. It was like, what? And it was not that much. It was a lot of desert plans. I was like, how can it be that much? So it really pays to be able to reuse your water. America does a very poor job of recycling. There's a reason for that. If you compare it, for example, Israel has almost 90% recycling. The second in the world is Spain with 20%. America, 1%. The reason is very simple. We built our water systems a long time ago when it was just one direction. Comes from the mountains, we use it, and then we dump it to the rivers, treat it, but it's not going to come back uphill. And so we're kind of stuck with that system. The solution is, hey, decentralization, you're treating your own water, you can reuse your own water thus save money, also help with the drought problems because you're getting more than one turn out of that water. And so it's a legitimate solution. Long story short, a housing developer can plan on plunking down a housing development without worrying about a sewage connection. They can get their water piped in from the city, but if that's the problem, they just get it from a well. And then, of course, they can do their own irrigation, etc. And these days... You know, the preppers were right. We needed to be ready for anything. And sure enough, I think any housing development worth its salt is going to have a produce garden in the future. And you'll be able to water that with your water too. So we're seeing this show up in our operations. We're seeing detached communities show up on our radar as wanting systems like this. It is a trend. Migration from the primary cities to the secondary cities. I'm in Clearwater, Florida. I moved from Los Angeles. That's exactly what people are doing. You know, this is a suburb of Tampa, and even Tampa is, relatively speaking, a secondary city. So, movement to the secondary cities, first of all, overtaxes the local water systems, which are not accustomed to this kind of level. And secondly, there's a dearth of available properties, and sewage connections become a thing. So, that's more and more becoming a business, these self contained, human communities, they're going to have their own energy as much as they can. They're going to have their own water, clean water, treated water, reused water, and they're going to have eventually, I think, their own food. I think it's very wise to invest in that kind of community. 
So going back to the insane prices that you were just quoting from California, and I read that water is inflating at, I think it was three times the rate of normal inflation. Is the reason for that, is it overpopulation? Are we just using more water than we have in the past? Or like, what's contributing to a 300% increase over the regular inflation rate? Well, part of the problem is that the high point of federal funding for municipal water systems was in the 70s, when it was roughly $7.6 billion a year, which even that's not a lot, but it was better than nothing. And over the years, it's gone down to almost nothing. And even that almost nothing is loans, not grants. So federal support for water systems has disappeared. Meanwhile, environmental standards have risen. There's more and more dramatically demanding, like get more arsenic out of your water, get the fluorine out of the water, et cetera. All really needed, but it adds to the cost of that municipality. And then that municipality has a problem. Um, A few years ago, when Compton residents in California saw brown water coming out of their faucet, they said, what's going on? And the local water district said, well, We've been asking for money for a decade now, and your city council never allocated the money. And by the way, that water not, won't hurt you. It's just magnesium. So good luck. Well, that water district got closed down and taken over by the city of LA. But the bigger picture is there's a lot of funding problems. And so municipal water districts, for example, Austin's seen a tremendous rise. Why? Lots of in-migration, lots of pressure on the water system. They're trying to fund it somehow. The water rates go up, and they're relatively unregulated. There's actually a lot of freedom to raise water rates. You'd think they wouldn't be, but there are. And so one of the good things about water as a service is that a housing development, an HOA, or a business like a brewery can enter a long-term contract for water by the gallon that limits the amount of inflation that there can be and includes all of the maintenance all built in. And it's a very sane decision because it locks out the imponderable, right? It says, okay, this thing is set. It's going to rise at a certain CPI index, and it's going to be fully taken care of. And now we can move on to other problems. And that makes it a very popular idea. And for these systems, I know we've mostly talked about larger use cases. Are you also with one of your companies or acquisitions or, or what you currently have looking at anything where, whether it be somebody who's off the grid or they just live in a house that they want this kind of setup and their community doesn't have it yet. And so it's like a, literally for one house, can you do that? It's possible. The problem is that it's a mass market. The ticket is very low for us. So already we are dropping down from the very large to the, let's say the size system we're dealing with is $500,000 to $2 million. That's already a challenge to make good margins from, et cetera. Dropping further, you can buy a black water recycling system from Fuji Water, a very good system for, I don't know, $12,000. We're not Fuji Water. We're not that kind of industrial conglomerate that can build at that scale and industrialized like that. So we've chosen to stay out of the single family marketplace. That's why we're happy to work with a 200 door housing development, for example. That's kind of our sweet spot at this point. Well, I'm sure as time goes on, things are going to just get more affordable as technology starts to advance. And I'm sure, you know, in the next decade or so, we're going to start to see a lot more of those maybe single house systems. I'm curious, though, you mentioned all of the funding dried up from the municipalities and the government just seems to not care about water whatsoever. But I've seen more than ever recently, probably in the past decade, that just regular people are starting to invest back into water. They want clean water. They want, you know, renewable energy. So how are people actually going about doing this? Right. So we had a realization when we figured out that we could accelerate the adoption of good decentralized water systems that what would really make it work would be to get rid of the capital problem. Sign here, you get your system. It's not your property, it's ours. 
and it's basically you're paying for use. And that is a very attractive thing because people don't mind operating expenses versus capital expense, typically, especially since most businesses have not really planned for a big capital expense in water treatment that wasn't on their business plan. So we solved that problem and it takes the problem away. Now, we then realized, wait a minute, we're very good at raising money from regular investors is what we do. It's how we've paid for our development all these years. There's no secret that we've chosen to have a burn as opposed to living as a small water company in McKinney, Texas. We've chosen to kind of try bigger. And so we raise money for that and we're good at that. And we have a bench of really, really loyal investors who've done well with us and who are willing to look at helping us along. And we realize, wait a minute, we're good at doing this. Let's let the ordinary investor invest in water systems. And the structure is very similar to what the oil industry calls master limited partnerships, which is a basket of energy properties, pipeline, oil, and natural gas production. And that basket of assets generates royalties. And so it's a sophisticated investment, but we're free to invest in an MLP. There's about 60-some MLPs, and it's a big market, about $300 billion value. And it complements big oil. It doesn't take it away. It's an alternative source of innovation, of financing, et cetera. We adopted that idea by creating water-on-demand capital and letting people invest directly in it. All of a sudden, it's no longer just a high-risk microcap investment, you know, high-risk, high-reward. It's actually, to a great degree, a productive asset. And not only that, as opposed to precious metals and oil and gas and real estate, it hasn't had a big run yet. Why? Because people have not been able to invest in water systems except by getting a, you know, an exchange-traded fund or buying shares in Veolia. There's been no direct investment in the asset, and that is a first. And we believe we're really pioneering new ground. You've talked about water as a service, and you've also talked about the struggles that some of the cities are having. Are there any federal regulations that stops the city of Austin from coming to you and saying, we want you to handle the whole city. We'll work out a contract for water as a service. We don't want to have to deal with it as a city. We already have, in our conventional business, we already have small cities. It's becoming more and more commonplace because the water industry has another problem, which is they're aging out. It's called the silver tsunami. And there's about 3 million jobs that are becoming deficient this decade. And so increasingly, they're saying to private water companies, you take over the whole operating contract. So that is already happening. Now, moving to the next stage, which is getting rid of the capital requirement, is not something that we're getting into because it's a very big ticket. I'd rather have 500 businesses for whom we're doing the water work instead of five big cities. It's easier to do. It's more scalable. I prefer working with businesses. One of the problems with the water industry is big companies have it all locked up. So sure, I'm going to go to the city of Austin and I'm going to try and bid for an operating contract. And then Veolia is just going to come in and take the contract. And it's just, it happens so much that companies at our scale just go, you know what? You take the big stuff. That's what you own. Clayton Christensen was a wonderful technical writer. He wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And what he saw was that innovation comes from within the legacy systems are the legacy. He took the disk drive industry as his example. And as it got smaller and smaller and smaller, the seeds of the next generation were born in the existing player. 
were suppressed because it would have meant reducing their sales. So like, no way, we're not going down that road. Those people then left and destroyed the incumbent, this drive company. And this happened again and again and again and again. And so I'd much rather be able to innovate in the smaller form factor, as it's called, the smaller size. And really the growth is in decentralization as opposed to the big lumbering, fully owned municipal market. So I love the idea of trying to get to be like in Israel where they had, what was it, like 90% recycled water or something? Was that right, Riggs? Almost 90%, yes. So from a brewery or a large apartment building or any of these smaller players that you're targeting, like, how do you get them on board? Is it just such an astronomical cost savings that it's a no-brainer for them? Or what's the marketing tactic to you know, start to actually get that percentage up of recycled water? Well, that's a really good question because you have to get them early enough. If they finally solve the capital problem, at that point, you're just bidding for their capital job. And we have a lot of those. Our sales tripled last year, which is a huge for a water company. And it's because there's a lot of use it or lose it mentality in the sort of mid-range where people have budgets. They don't know what's going to happen to their inflated dollar tomorrow. So they're buying like crazy. And I think that we're going to see a lot of that American business is an apparent boom but they're still not as big as the boom in the degradation of the dollar. But that's a whole different podcast, right? So meanwhile, we have these companies that we talk to, by the time they put things out to bid, they've figured out their capital and they go, hey, we, got, we got this. So just please just give us a bid. We continue to service those people. To find the people who are early stage, who are trying to solve that capital problem, we're actually creating a whole new channel. And it relates to a decision we made about how to scale what we call water on demand which is if we're going to finance these systems and put them on a service contract, if we then try and build and maintain those, it'll take us 20 years to scale up because of the amount of time it takes to build. And we'll have to like acquire companies and raise a ton of money and create presence in Washington State and all that stuff. Instead, we've chosen to just be the finance, the fintech player, and hand off the building and maintaining of it to a local regional water company which makes us very popular because every loves a capital source. And so we say, hey, let's see, we have a friend, Acme Water Company in Atlanta, Georgia. And we say, hey, guys, we've got a contract for you. It's a housing development in Alpharetta, and they want to connect, blah, 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 blah. Give us a bid and we'll pay. I'm like, okay, sounds great. What we're also learning is those people are a source of deal flow for us. One company I spoke to and that we have a close relationship dates back a decade in Southern California, I was talking to them about this and they said, hey, we got a golf course in San Diego that they want to do that sewage skim thing. They got no capital for it. It's a $3 million project. And can you help? And I'm like, yeah, we can do it. So that's where these water companies, they're close to the ground. It's long before a company has gone to bid with a job and they're trying to figure out like, how can we do this? And that's where we get deal flow. So What's cool about this is we consider this kind of our supercharger network, the thing that makes a big barrier to entry for other companies, which is if we develop relationships with all these regional water companies, where it's a mutual partnership, one sort of interlocking mutual aid, then we've kind of created a relationship that's going to make it hard for the next company to go in and try to do what we do. So A, it's a solution to scaling because we're just doing the finance and the contract management. B, it's a source of deal flow from companies that are interested. And C, if you're talking, for example, about housing developments, 
there's a great developer network. It's the real estate world is very well connected. People know each other very well. And already we started a network in that one particular network. There's about 40 developers in Northern Texas alone that would be interested in this. And we're trying to enter those. So when it comes to communities, developers are wonderful. And then we have our conventional relationships in the water industry, which is consulting engineers. These are the people who, if I'm a brewery and I got to figure something out, I'll find an engineer. Well, that engineer is interested in that contract happening because that's how he or she gets paid. And so they, we think, will also be bird dogs for deals. Long story short is, I don't think we'll have a problem getting deal flow if we have the capital. Capital is flowing. People love the idea of being able to invest in a tangible water asset that produces, when this thing matures, they'll have a dashboard and they'll be able to see how much water is flowing. And that's when we get to the later stage of crypto assets, which is a whole other game, probably beyond the scope of this discussion, but it's naturally perfect for a crypto token wrapper. Actually, that was what I was going to ask next is like, we've been talking about investing. We've been talking about raising money and talking about decentralizing things. And I know that there is, you've mentioned crypto with a water company. And I'm like, how do those two things interlock? And why do you feel the need to create your very own currency? I was very excited in 2018. I remember in December 2017, going to the Miami Bitcoin conference and there was a start engine conference in LA. And I was very excited about the idea of a water coin, which we branded water chain at the time. I spoke at some industry. In fact, D10E, which is a decentralization conference, I spoke to them about decentralized water. The problem with water chain, twofold. Number one is we had that famous crypto winter cut in in later 2018, which is like, whoa. The more important problem, we could have kept going, that wasn't the issue, was that there was no stable price for water all over the place. Water pricing is totally political. Michael Burry, the famous big short, where he says, the next thing I'm going to do is water. Well, he went into water. The rest of that story is he learned it's highly politicized. And he basically gave up and went into farming as an indirect water user, and he's doing quite well. The point I'm making is that the whole water, legacy water thing is very archaic, and it all depends on, you know, was your grandfather a water holder in the 1800s and that kind of stuff. So we just found we could not get a stable price for water. Fast forward to today, now we're building a network of functional water systems that are paying by the gallon. So every single gallon of water is paid for. Well, now, hey, guess what? The second big thing that's good about the crypto industry is you no longer have to build a crypto from the ground up. You can build the NFT, non-fungible tokens, is a great thing because you're just sitting on top of an Ethereum standard. There's a market existing already. And all you got to do is package it as essentially a royalty-bearing NFT, which is nothing science fiction about it. It's already being done. And bingo, you got yourself a digital bond that you can then transfer. And in that bond is embedded all the future revenue from your water royalties. Decide, you know what, I'm going to sell that to Cody and he's going to buy it for some discount to the net present value. And I got my cash, Cody's got the future revenue, we move on. And that for investors will be very good because one of the problems with people investing in a 25-year revenue cycle is I don't know if I want to be around. I mean, I would be around in 25 years. So what do I do? Well, this will create liquidity and ultimately we believe will create a market. Because the problem with water is there is no world market for water. 
Why? Water is local. It's too heavy, too cheap to send it from New York to Atlanta. So the people who have a water price problem in Northern California, they can't hedge their water risk with options on Singapore water. Impossible. doesn't exist. But once a crypto world is created, let's say they're NFTs. I'm just throwing that out as a placeholder, right? It could be an asset coin just as easily. Then we start getting into exchangeability and every one of these is paid for. Every gallon has money attached to it. So it's monetized. And so that makes it something that I think my personal opinion about crypto is that the crappy concept coins are going to be washed out. And we're going to be left with things that have, I'm excluding Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are special cases. Everything else is really going to get looked at like, well, is there something real there? Is there a business model or is there a real asset? And if it's not that, I think it's going to have a hard time. So we think it's going to be a very popular coin. We're not doing it right now. And there's very good reasons for it. Number one, it's just not part of the business cycle for us. We can deliver dividends using ACH just fine. Not an issue. Automated clearinghouse. It's painful because then people change their bank accounts and you got a poor customer sales rep trying to update things and it's kind of lame, but it does work, right? It's a workable system. Mortgage companies do it all the time. But that next step of being able to transfer just by changing addresses and all that, that's really exciting. What we're running into is the fact that the SEC does not love crypto and we'd just as soon not create barriers. So we've explicitly excluded it from the current business plan of water on demand because we believe we've already made plans to file for a regulation a offering for water on demand currently it's only accredited investors or non-us you know i'm a strong believer like i think it's a piece of crap that only the one percent can invest in interesting things i think that's really stupid so regulation a which is the jobs act thing that was created for unaccredited investors has become extremely viable And this summer, we expect to have an offering. And the last thing we want is for the SEC to go, what's this crypto? So we are choosing to defer it and actually make it a separate spinoff completely that will be funded using more conventional crypto type. There's a whole crypto world for financing, which is separate. That's a long way to say that it's really tokenizable and we want to create water communities and the crypto world, all that good stuff but all in good time. We want to lay in the fundamental financing of water systems that everyday investors like Cody and Justin can have access to. Awesome. Well, I love everything you're doing. I love the innovation. I'm sure these things are going to unfold with time and going to continue to just advance the technology. And I think that the crypto thing is such a good idea and commoditizing something like water is something that hasn't really been done before. For those who are like me and are really interested in what you're doing and all the companies that you're running, where are the best places for people to keep up with you, know what's going on, get invested and all that good stuff? Okay. If you're accredited, it's very simple. You go to originclear.com and there's a big green button at the top right. You press that and you'll find yourself talking to the amazing Ken Berenger, who is so smart and is co-creator of this Water On Demand with me. If you're unaccredited, you should still do that because it'll register you and Everyone should start listening to our Thursday night briefings. Every week, I do about a 45-minute briefing of all the things that are happening. We are the most transparent public company in America, we believe. I basically tell it all within the legal bounds of what I can say. And as a result, people really, over time, they really get to know everything we're thinking of. So 
an easy way for people to sign up is to just type in their browser oc.gold slash CEO, oc.gold slash CEO, or just go to originclear.com and they'll get an invitation to go on the briefing. I would love to have people join it. We respond to all questions, even the tough ones. We will take it. What's up with your stock price? Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. We'll do it all. And so there's a reason why we have a strong investor base and because they understand that we are responsive. If you receive one of my newsletters, when you hit reply, it comes into my inbox. And even though there's 30,000 people who receive it, I do answer your emails. And we pride ourselves on having that kind of relationship because I believe Main Street investors are the future of America. Decentralization of finance means that there's going to be more and more growth of everyday investors, even if they only plunk in $1,000. That's really, really healthy to have a very large amount of small investors. It makes for a very healthy future and a very healthy investor base. Well, Riggs, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, that's the great thing about having this podcast. You learn something new every day. And this has been a really neat kind of deep dive into this water market. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your great questions. It's been fascinating. And I guess I just kind of let it all hang out. But that's, I guess you guys are good at that, right? <laughs> and as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thebuyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, you can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.